0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode, so let's jump right in.
1: Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. Hi, I'm Selma. Welcome to the Bunded Edge podcast.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Selma. That's my little niece, Selma. She just turned four and was very excited to hear her voice recorded. And so I'm on a little family vacation here just before Christmas with my sister and her two little girls, Selma and Rowan. Rowan is just a little over one years old and has not learned to talk yet, but we'll get her on an intro soon enough. So now that I had the opportunity to be with family this time around, I'm going to let my sister, Emily, do the introduction for this podcast. So here we go.
1: We've covered so many different ways to approach reforestation, both with native species and mixes of natives and orchard trees. In today's session, Oliver wanted to focus on fruit orchards, and he got to speak with the wizard behind Miracle Farms and the film, The Permaculture Orchard, Stefan Subkowiak. Oliver has been a fan of Stefan's work for a while, and he spent a lot of time on his excellent YouTube channel, where he offers tons of tutorials and solutions to practical aspects of managing a whole ecosystem around his orchard enterprise. In this interview, we break it all down from the beginning, from how Stefan began to look for land and the challenging climate of Canada, all through his great advice for how to get started from selecting species, building soil, propagating trees, and growing from there. We also go into how Stefan leverages nature's tools to create a healthy and balanced ecosystem that not only brings more resilience to the operation, but helps to reduce labor and external inputs. Towards the end, we also unpack some invaluable advice on how to make money through innovative marketing strategies so you can make a respectable living on a modest amount of land. We cover a really wide range of topics and Stefan really knows his stuff. So don't forget to check out the links in the show notes for this episode and maybe even keep a notebook around for good measure. Now let's hand things over to Stefan.
2: Hey Stefan, thank you so much for making the time
1: to be with me here today, how are you doing?
2: Great, great Oliver, let's get started.
0: Let's do it, so I'm a big fan of your work and I've actually been going back and re-watching the film uh, of the Permaculture Orchard, which you walk through all of your systems on Miracle Farms and I've got tons of questions. Uh, you As well explained as everything was, but let's start from the beginning and have you tell us a little bit about your personal background and how you got started in agroforestry. Uh,
2: long circuitous route. Uh, did a I, I studied uh, wildlife biology, and uh, then I did a master's in landscape architecture. Fortunately, in 1990, discovered. Bill Malson's book, uh, The Designer's Manual, devoured it for three weeks, got so excited I realized I had to get started, I had to get planted, I had to get going, Um, started to look for a place because we were living uh, in the city where we still do but we're looking for a place uh, to start and found a little farm after two years of search. So if anybody's ever thinking, Oh yeah, good. I want to get started. It's doesn't always happen overnight. So I understand how sometimes delays, but, uh, so I bought this, or we bought this 4,000 tree monoculture conventional apple orchard that we transitioned to organic did that for five years and really came to the conclusion that it just, it, it wasn't an, an active and viable ecosystem. It still was a monoculture. I had to admit that, yeah, you know, f- you know, at that point I had 3,000 trees because there's a learning curve. So losing 25% of the trees is just par for the course. And got started, got going. And by then I was already teaching uh, in PDCs. And, and I realized I was a little bit of a hypocrite because I would teach people how to set up a permaculture orchard. I would come into my monoculture organic orchard and I thought, geez, this isn't exactly what I'm teaching. So it took a few years. We set up a nursery and replanted the orchard and then to at least be able to say that what I'm teaching is what I'm doing. So that's kind of where we got to uh, in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, I think that's a situation that a lot of people can relate to and that they want to get started real fast. It ends up taking longer than they thought. And in the beginning, they kind of have to make some compromises from what their ideals are and and kind of balance things out until they're able to go all in. Now, how, ma- how many acres is Miracle Farms on?
2: We're on 12 acres, of which we have about five, six acres planted now or replanted gotcha. in a permaculture orchard. We still have about an acre in in uh, somewhat monoculture, but gradually transitioning uh, orchard.
0: And so, though you were organic from the beginning, that monoculture put it in contrast to what you were aiming to achieve. How would you define the difference between a permaculture orchard and and how it's different from a conventional one?
2: Diversity. That's the main thing uh, we had before. It would be the same species so it would be all in our case it was an apple orchard but the same thing for pear or plum or peach orchard whatever it's always it's always planted as a monoculture that's the whole ideal of a orchard nowadays when we say oh i have an orchard well you have usually an orchard made up of the same tree so the big difference is we don't have a monoculture to the point where we don't even have the same species touching two trees in a row at least that's the goal we might have a few examples where two trees of the same species touch but not on that's not by design it just happens so the idea is that we really want there to be diversity within the row and uh, between rows so that that's the big difference and we function in a system of trios so we'll put a nitrogen fixer uh, which is completely different from fruit trees it's a totally different family and then we'll put either two fruit trees a fruit tree and a nut tree or two nut trees. so that's the the basis of trios and it's quite a departure from the monoculture uh, apple orchard that we had i would never go back to a monoculture i may as well just quit because it just uh, I, I've been there, and I definitely don't want to go back and when I hear Mollison in his writings and in his talkings, he says, uh, "If you're ever so unfortunate as to inherit a monoculture orchard, <laughs> and I get it totally because it is a it's a misfortune. It's, You think, Oh, that's great, you know, well, it's not so great. You're better off inheriting a piece of open land than to inherit an existing monoculture orchard, because it's why far. Is that? Well, it's far easier to start from scratch than to undo what's there to redo what you would like. It's, it's just, it's not as obvious to think, well, I'll just cut some trees down. Well, the tree doesn't want to just die. Even if you cut it down, you would have to cut it and yank your roots out for, for that tree to no longer be an apple. And then you have basically, a you know, you'll have trees that are high and others that are small so it it would it's harder to restart that way than it is to start from scratch Uh, having done it i know that yeah it's a lot of work to take out an existing orchard and then replant
0: and so it's taken you how long to make this transition to where you are now and how much longer do you think until you reach the goal that you set for yourself
2: well we've been we replanted the first block in 2007 so it's going to be 12 years this year and then we replanted 2008, 2009, uh, 2013, 14. and uh, we've been replanting kind of every year since in a s- smaller capacity. This year we just put in a, a block uh, totally departing from the whole idea of planting an orchard where we seeded an orchard so that's getting into experimenting and trying new things but it it, yeah it took a few years Uh, the orchards most of the orchard blocks are in full production so that's very nice that uh, now it's really cranking Um, but it uh, takes a few years orchards are not planting a radish crop and i always remind people you know you're maybe used to planting vegetables and it's 30 days and 60 days well, this is more like three years to six years. So it, it's a very different time scale. It'll take a lot more patience. It'll take a lot more financial uh, back, backing because you're going to have to, till you start having money coming in, it will be money going out.
0: Yeah, that's something that we've covered so many times in previous episodes on this podcast is, is how to make that transition into a perennial system, especially one that matures kind of late, and how to manage the finances and the diversity and work in the efficiency of the model to make sure that it pays back as an investment. But let's, let's keep going with the beginning because you said that you were starting to teach permaculture even before you started to transition the orchard yourself. Can you talk a little bit about how people can get started designing an orchard that creates a resilient ecosystem with as little inputs as possible as you defined your goals in in the film? What are some of the most important things to consider?
2: I I like to say just start. That's really a a mantra that I, I like to push because... If you think, well, I don't have this and I don't have that and I don't have the land and I don't have, and you put all kinds of reasons why you can't, while just focus on, I say, start with two trios. You say, well, I, you know, I'm living in a suburb or I'm living in the city and I don't have much room. Do you have room for six trees? And it may be just six shrubs. You can do trios with shrubs. And so just start, get some trees in, get two trios because two trios work really well. If you just put in three trees, then none of the trees may have the ability to get pollinated and therefore you'll think, well, it doesn't produce. Well, it doesn't produce because you only have one of each of the trees. So two trios guarantees that you'll have, well, doesn't guarantee, but it makes it far more likely that you'll have good pollination and you'll have a good start. And you'll learn just as much with two trios as you would with 200 trees. So that's the key is if you can start, and those of you who are listening who are further south, you still have a planting season. You may still be able to plant where the ground is totally frozen here, and this planting season is well over. But if you can start this fall, even this weekend, go out and just Just put in six trees, start with that. And then gradually you'll diversify, add a couple of shrubs per each tree and fruiting shrubs. So you'll have your collection. And what I like to say is if you start that way, now that's not a huge investment, putting in six trees and and let's say 12 shrubs and company that by some perennials, you may put in for $500. You say, well, you know, that's a lot of money. Well, $500 is is really not a lot of money compared to putting in an orchard of a few hundred trees. But when you have these six trees going and the shrubs underneath and some perennials, in two years, the plants that really are happy, and I like to say happy because a plant that's happy will double every year. So... In two years, you will probably get to a point where you can multiply your existing plants by 10. That's where it gets interesting. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, in two years, you have plenty of time to learn how. And so you'll be able to do some propagation. You'll be able to learn about taking cuttings. If you check out my YouTube channel, I got some nice little videos on propagating shrubs and a couple of easy techniques. And so those are ways that you can get started, very, relatively inexpensive. And then if you say, well, it'll give you the opportunity to to grow. So if you say, well, I only put in two trios. Well, what's 10 times that? That's 12 trios. And then from there, so 12 trios times six, you're up to 72 trees. And then you can grow by another 10 times in another two years. So it's that kind of multiplication. You say, well, all I have room for is six trees and that's where I want to stay. Well, great. Then you can get started and have your yard producing uh, in just a few years with two trios. So it's really that whole issue of starting. And and I know, I mean, I'm talking to you about it, but I know because I had the dream and the idea of doing it, but I had this monoculture orchard and it really kept me for quite a few years from starting to replant the orchard the way I wanted. So just start, I should have started years ago with a lot less rather than trying to put in right away. You know, we put in one acre and then we put in uh, two and three and a half acres. So it, it's, it's a lot more to think in that scale while you could start much smaller. And then you'll, at least if you start, you'll have the fruit that much earlier. And it's the time element that's really critical because the longer you delay, the longer you won't get to taste the fruit of your work. And that's where the change really happens. When you start to harvest then you start to go, oh my gosh, the first year we harvested a few sweet cherries. I thought, why didn't I put in 50? <laughs> because it takes a few years for them to produce. And then when they did, I thought, wow, one tree, the birds come in, they eat everything. <laughs> so that's that's another issue. But yeah, I thought I should have put in more. And so, okay, but at least I learned with that one. and. And now I'm planning to put in more, but that's the, that's the progression. Just start is so important to it.
0: Man, I really love that advice and that methodology. I really have echoed that in, in some of the things that I've taught through my own courses and, and it applies to many other things than just ecosystems as well. Like I, I talk about starting with very small projects in natural building and it's a great way of working out some of the difficulties, the learning curve and the mistakes that you're going to do, on smaller projects with less risk and you know, a lot less to lose if you get it wrong or if you make some larger mistakes. And like you said, especially with these, these projects taking longer with the successional models of perennial plants, not only will it make it much cheaper to propagate and grow your orchard down the line, but it'll give you the time to learn those skills and make some of those adjustments as you learn them rather than making a big initial investment. And, you know, running the risk of (laughs) it failing because you're new to the the whole system.
2: And if it fails, it's not as big of a financial hit. Absolutely. I guess for you, you're talking something like use, use the opportunity to build a little shed, which you don't need the different permitting. Most places they'll allow you to put in a shed. So if you build a little eight by 10 shed well you don't need permits for that and you can practice building with whatever a a clay mud uh, mud brick or straw bale or whatever technique but you've practiced it and you're you're getting going and it's the same thing just a different scale when you go to say well now I want to build a house that's uh, 30 by 30 well it's not the corners, it's the same detail, the wall, it's the same detail, uh, the work around the door, it's the same detail.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> a lot of people find out in the first project that they either do or do not even really like what they set out to do. You know, it's, it's just something you've got to figure out, like you said, by, by jumping into it and just getting started.
2: Now, I, w- I would even back up one more and say, if you see somebody asking for help, and they want to do yes. uh, a building jump in on their project because as you say, rather than getting through all of that and getting set up to start building a shed in the back in your backyard, maybe if you're helping somebody on theirs and you go, Oh, this isn't exactly what I want to do. Well, that's great. You've learned that you don't even want to embark on maybe that technique. So then jump Mm -hmm. on another project and, and people can learn, you don't have to do it all in your place. You can help yeah. other people, and you'll learn you'll do the process
0: especially because you're likely to be working with people with more experience that can help give you advice that you might not even have come to on your own, just for not having thought through that process for as long as they have i mean i'm very fortunate that that's mostly how I learned this stuff. I went to school for totally different things, but I traveled around all over the world, just helping people on their projects and you know slowly but surely building a skill set into these that that kind of helped me advance without having to take on all of the risk and and the upfront cost where are you based let's get back to the topic hold on so right now yeah right now i'm in kuwait um but i'm just visiting family i am based in spain though i'm from minnesota and (laughs) i did most of this work and and really worked on my first farm in guatemala so it's it's been a huge mess of,
2: of so, locations. So just in Spain, are you working, or do you have a project planned in the next six months? Do you have a build so, there?
0: So now that I have um, transitioned away from the farm that I had in Guatemala, I am in the stage of looking for land. And there's actually a couple of places that my partner and I are looking into more closely, and it's one of the reasons why I'm talking to you now, and I've, I've looked into so many of the resources that you've put out, is because um, starting up an orchard is one of the things that I think might be most viable for us on a small acreage, um, and having it integrate with a couple of other enterprises on a small farm. Right. And so here, let's, let's uh, jump back a little bit now to some of your methodology and how you develop your companion plant polycultures. I really love your NAP system. And could you, first of all, explain a little bit of the NAP uh, (laughs) methodology? And do you have to wait years to see what grows well together? Or can you make some educated guesses that speed up that process?
2: Yeah, first of all, um. I don't use the NAP anymore. (laughs) Really? You transitioned away from that one? Well, I use what I call trios, simply because the NAP kind of locked people in. The NAP was N-A-P, and N was the symbol for a nitrogen fixer, so that's fine. And then I would say AP was apple pear or apple plum. Well, that's fine Mm -hmm. if you're in my type of climate, but if you're in Kuwait, Nap doesn't work at all in that you say, well, apples don't grow here. <laughs> and so, so now I just keep it as trios and people can understand trio. Okay. What's a trio? Well, it's one is a nitrogen fixer and then you use two fruit trees or a fruit tree and a nut or two nuts. So that's the, the definition really of my trios now. So, but it's important that those
0: two that aren't the nitrogen fixers not be the same species.
2: Right, right. Yep. So that's, that's the, the the basis of trios and, and uh, yeah, I would say your, your second part is it, my understanding and observation of it is that most plants really want to cooperate. There are very few examples where the plants really don't work well together. And it took 10 years to see that. And the example was in Mollison's book. And I, I saw that and I thought, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> uh, I <laughs> thought, well, you know, if a tree is stressed, and this is what I did learn, is that when a tree is not stressed, it doesn't need its defense system. Now, what's a defense? Right. example used with walnuts. Right. So Mollison talked about walnuts pl- doesn't go well with apples. And I thought, well, you know, I've had my trees for nine years and they're doing fine and they're next to each other and there's no problem. Well, when the walnut tree really started to produce, now it's a totally different tree. It's no longer the juvenile that all it's looking to do is grow wood. Now it has to put out nuts. So when the walnut really began, and it had begun a few years earlier with a few nuts, but when it really started to produce nuts en masse, then it no longer wanted the apple next to it. And every walnut that was next to an apple tree killed the apple tree that was right next to it. Mm -hmm. And that that extended up to about 50 feet away. So the roots are quite far out and they will affect. So if I had, for example, uh, walnut as the nut tree and then apple and then a nitrogen fixer, and then I would have two fruit trees and a nitrogen fixer. If in the second trio, if you can imagine there's a first trio and a second trio, the apple in the first trio would be killed, but the apple in the second trio so far hasn't been affected. So there Mm. is a distance element that is important because basically the walnut won't go through, uh, let's say, five other trees to get to the roots of the second apple. That's too far and so it did it did kill all the apple trees and it happened really quite quickly i was surprised within 2 years first you'd see well this tree is starting to look a little affected like the leaf color would change and well by the end of the second year every one of them were completely dead dry you know firewood so mm. That is the only example that I have observed of them not getting along. Now, I don't know for all climates and all the different species, because I know that, you know, I, I just came back from a tour of Europe and in, in France, especially the south of France, the range of fruit trees that you can grow. Wow, it's like, man, or, or the southern U.S. You can grow so many different fruit. I mean, we've got apple, pear, plum. And limited cherries. That's our fruit range. You yeah, say, well, well, no, apricots don't grow well here in the flatlands. Anyway, uh, in the mountains they may, but and so you're really limited in the range. While they're talking much more diversity. So I don't know with all the different combinations, but overall, I have seen that plants do well together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those are just variables that you have to start to discover when you get to know your place and your context much better. It's impossible for someone to to learn that for the whole world. Um, Let's talk about some of the other methods that you use to to reduce the maintenance and the the extra work that you would have to do to, to take care of these trees. I know you have sort of a controversial method of managing weeds, though I've heard your defense of plastic mulch and I understand it. Could you explain it a little to our listeners?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I never set out to put out plastic mulch in the orchard. That wasn't the original intent. Uh, we did start with uh, wood chips, uh, ramial branch fragments, which is chipped small branches. And that, that, the idea was that uh, you put in a layer of mulch, and I had worked on many projects before the orchard, Where if we put six inches or about 15 centimeters of these wood chips, they would last for about three years or they decompose at the rate of about an inch a year. So you would have a good mulch for three years. And I thought, ha, great, you know. So we scrounged around, managed to get uh, about 100 cubic yards of uh, wood chips. And that's a, a tractor trailer load equivalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay we spread that by hand its it, I don't know if anybody's ever emptied a <laughs> tractor a trailer load it's not a small amount so it, took, it it's a lot of work so we put it out but it was done and it was like that's great that was November and by when the snow melted in late March early April and the grass started to green it would be green right across the whole field there was no visible lines of wood chips left and I thought that's impossible you know we we put in I know we have photos and so I thought what's going on here well by June we were looking for our orchard in the grass and that's not a good way to start an orchard if you can't even see the trees because of the grass uh, you can't expect the trees to grow so we were at risk of losing the orchard And that's a lot of work. I mean, planting is actually the least work. It's, it's getting, we grew all our own trees. So it's growing your trees for basically three years before and starting rootstock and then grafting and so on. So that was like, we got to do something or we're going to lose the orchard because the trees are overwhelmed by grass. We could mow. uh, But the thing is, you got to know where your trees are exactly. Because if you don't see them, anyway, it was a lot of work. And we decided we got to do something. Let's try some plastic because we had used plastic in the nursery and it was so, so much easier that we said, maybe if we could put some of this big, thick silage plastic, uh, we could, you know, work underneath the trees. So we did, which is something I would never do again. Not that I don't want to use plastic, but I would never do it the way I show you to use in the film. So you could see there's some, there's been improvements over the years of how we do things. Uh, simply because it would take us four people one week to do one acre of laying plastic mulch the way we did after we had put the trees in. So Mm -hmm. the big difference now is I would have somebody come in and they could do 12 acres in a day with a mulch layer and they could lay down the plastic mulch with drip irrigation under the plastic. And then you come in and you plant your small, small, Fruit trees, and you're good to go. You got an orchard that is super low maintenance because you don't have to be putting anything to control grass. Which, even in organic, because you don't have herbicides, what you would do is you'd use a uh, like a cultivator, and you would basically weed under the trees when they're young with that. And I've seen other people use um, acids to put, like you could use even cider vinegar to put underneath the trees that will kill the grass and so on so there's organic techniques that are approved but we went with plastic and so i i say you know don't think of plastic until you've got over 200 trees because you really could mulch for 200 trees you really could mulch that it's it's a big job but it it's doable well when we're talking five acres and we needed to put at least three times more mulch than we did, which means three tractor loads times five acres. Now you're talking 15 tractor loads. Obviously, you can't handle that amount of material by hand. You think, oh, I'm young, I'm strong. Listen, start with one <laughs> tractor trailer load, unload that, and you tell me if you're good for 15. And you have to do that every year pretty well. Yeah, yeah. It's well, not realistic at all. It, it, it's a different thing. So. One of the things I learned early was my experience was all in garden projects and yard projects. And I quickly learned the orchard is no longer a garden or yard scale. It is a much bigger scale. And so you have to think in terms of scale. As long as you're leaving your orchard to a yard, then you can do a lot of things very differently from what you would do when you're talking acres of area.
0: Yeah, at that scale, the economics of it just changes. And so you've done a really good job about harvesting nature's resources to help you with a lot of the maintenance and the balance of the ecosystem that you're cultivating. Can you talk a little bit about how you work to attract beneficial predators and insects and help to keep away some of the the hazards and the pests
2: through just smart design? Well, the biggest is the biodiversity right from the start. So that's that's an essential like when as soon as we did that with with not really any other major change from the way the orchard was before we got rid of our worst pest, which was a caterpillar. And that was so convincing. Like when I planted the orchard, I actually didn't say a word about it. I kept my gate closed. I didn't want anybody to come by and visit because the few people who did look and say, they basically were telling me how crazy it was and how it'll never work. Well, listen, when I planted, I wasn't convinced. I, I mean, it's one thing to read and let me, let me, You know, stop on this. You can read all kinds of stuff and you can watch the film about the permaculture orchard and say, oh, look at what he did. And all you know is what you see. So there's levels of knowing. You can know because you read about it or you saw it in a video. That's all you do is you know that. But then there is knowing with conviction, which happens only when you've actually tried it and done it. And done it even I would say done it at a scale that you want to do it. Then you get a level of conviction that is basically unshakable. Like I can, people can say all kinds of things, but like I, I, I kind of just smile and say, "Well, <laughs> thank you for your, you know, your point of view." And right. and it, I I like to say to people who who and there are people who criticize because there'll always be people who criticize, and that's just normal. And I'll just say. That's that's a good point. And I said, how many trees do you have? Right. <laughs> and that usually stops them dead because some of the people who are most vocal are also the ones who are armchair gardeners or farmers. And yeah, they've yeah. read and they've heard and they've listened to Mark Shepard and they've listened to what I said and they've listened to other people. And they'll have comments. But, hey, get off your couch. Get out of your chair and get planting. Get doing Because all you know is your telephone effect. And until you actually start doing it and trying it and practicing it, you really don't know. You just, you know, you'll propagate ideas. And and that's one of the dangers of seeing books written by people who basically glean information from others. They're just repeating what others say, but they've never tried it out for themselves. Of course. So,
0: in balancing this ecosystem, what are some of the methods that you recommend people do to really invite a cooperation with nature? And, you know, you started with the diversity of your plantings. Can right. you create habitat in other ways or incentives for the wildlife that you want to come, maybe even before these plantings are established?
2: Sure. I mean, some of the quick ones, uh, the, the easiest, and we are talking, let's say, wildlife. The wildlife have three basic needs. Food cover and water. So food, you could think, well, you know, what can I do? Well, you could probably add a feeder. So if you're going to put trees, put in a feeder. It's not the same birds exactly that are going to eat your, let's say, seed as will eat your fruit. Or if, it, if you're in a more Southern area, you could actually give them fruit and then you'll get birds who like to eat fruit and they, you could put a, a fruit feeder and that works well in the tropics and subtropics. So that's one. So food is a simple, quick, I like to say, you know, do the quick stuff first because you could do that this weekend. So get out a feeder. Um, the next thing is, is cover. That takes a little longer. You want to give them a place that they feel safe to hide in. If you look at, let's say, our orchard, we, we actually planted this year plantings just for habitat, for cover, for the future. And because in the orchard in the wintertime, it's completely stark, like it's just branches. There's no leaves, all the leaves have fallen. We're in a deciduous climate. There's no evergreen leaves or persistent uh, leaves on the trees. So we started to plant uh, a cedar tree, which is a uh, evergreen in our climate. And we put in a whole row down the middle basically where birds will be able to come into the orchard and in the future as these trees grow and feel safe there. So that's the importance of cover. And you say, well, that's planting and that takes a while. Well, if you're pruning branches, you can make brush piles. And we got, we got hundreds of yards of brush pile uh, all around the orchard. So that's an important one. You can even start with just one pile. And there are some species that will use that. So cover is is really, it's often the critical factor. It's what's usually most lacking. And another simple one is water. So a good example, if you've ever had tomatoes and you've had, especially in our climate, we get squirrels eating tomatoes. Well, if you have that, that's a sure sign that you just don't have any water around because a squirrel doesn't prefer tomatoes, but it will drink the liquid or the juice out of the tomato when it needs water. And it's only mm-hmm. doing it to get some water. So you can get cues that way that, oh, you know what? I don't have enough water. We'll put in a bird bath, then maybe put in a pond, a little pond, and then put in a bigger pond. So these are the kind of things you can do. And it adds to the diversity. And, and once you've got these key elements, for example, in one of, we have little ponds, we're in totally sandy soil. And we have to add water uh, every few days to a little pond just for it to hold water. But we have we had one area that's a little more clay because we had a load of rock dust dumped there. And where the rock dust is, it makes like a clay. And because that's a pond and it stays wet and it's a, basically a clay surface, uh, that's where all the wasps come that are uh, that need balls of it's the mud wasp that need balls of mud, and we wouldn't have mud wasps if we didn't have that pond. So that's the limiting factor to getting that kind of wasp. And then we can add structures for some of the insects. So we do add uh, logs for bees and and pieces of wood with holes drilled them for bees, and that's a whole range of different species of bees. We have put up biotopes, which are basically little shelters. Uh, it's more than an insect hotel because it's for insects, it's for birds, it's for bats, it's for uh, snakes and frogs and so on. So, yeah, that's pushing it because, well, that's, that's my background. And I, I want to see what we can do, the simplest things that we could do, but that were the most effective. But your two keys, at least in our climate, temperate climate, for reducing insects that will help you a lot is birds and wasps and if people don't like wasps well get over it and get used to it because they are the single most important insect in the orchard Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah and it's one of the things that i love that when you kind of get into this attitude of working with nature you don't have to do a lot of the detailed work Sometimes it's it's just a matter of getting out of the way or providing the really base tools or resources and that's where life takes over. And if they have what they need to survive and thrive, they just it starts to compound on itself as those resources become available.
2: Exactly. That's a good great so, summary.
0: Let's talk a little bit. Another thing that you're very good at is diversifying not only the ecology that you're working with. So, you know, you've moved away from monocultures, you've provided the resources for wildlife and beneficial insects to come in and start to balance itself out. But you also work with chickens. And I know you have other kind of complementary enterprises on the farm that help with the fertility, the soil building and all of these. Can you talk about how this fits into the larger plan of the health of the orchard? and even helps with the economics and, and the resiliency of the farm enterprise.
2: Yeah, I, I, I kind of look at agriculture really needs in our, again, I'll say in our climate, but in a lot of climates, trees are essential. So where trees can grow, trees are really important for the ecosystem, but also for the system to function well because it's the habitat and so on. So trees are one, and then animals are one. So if you think, well, you know, and I've heard a lot of people who, who would be uh, vegan would say, well, yeah, but I don't want animals because uh, I just want to grow the plants. and And that's fine, but it's so much harder because yeah. – the plants really rely on the animals, and the animals rely on the plants. It is part of the ecosystem, so it's you can't really get enough wildlife often to do the impact, and so raising uh, animals is a good way to add to the impact and you say, well i don't want to raise animals, okay, then keep them as a you know have a shelter for animals and keep animals but the animal impact is really. Really important um, you can 't build soil as quickly as you can with a pulsed system of a, um, especially a mob grazing and mob grazing, if you 're not familiar with it, look in the words mob grazing uh, it 's it's far more than for years the 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 system was encouraged to do rotational grazing or intensive rotational grazing. Or another word is called management intensive grazing. Those are great. And that's a, you know, start with that. And then as you progress, you'll learn, wow, we could even take this a big step further where we're talking mob grazing, which is uh, a very limited time on a small area with a given amount of animal impact. And that changes it even more. Like some of the practitioners... In our area, there's one guy who I think he has the highest organic matter soils in, in our part of the country. Uh, his soils go from 14% to 24% organic matter. Well, 24% organic matter is like your best vegetable soils kind of thing. And yeah, he's you're, got you're that. Nearly compost at that point. It's, it's incredible. He never has puddles happening because you've got such a huge sponge. So now he's actually looking at, well, maybe we should start doing something to use some of this because like, how far do you want to, you know, compound this amount of organic matter? But that's what happens when he moves his animals four times a day. And he's talking uh, sheep, uh, mostly cows and sheep. But if you move animals four times a day and they only come back at some times of the year in 60 or 70 days, wow, that. That gives the grass lots of time to recover, uh, and it 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 really works with the grass. Like this is not something new. The buffalo did this, and the you know the wildebeest do this. And we really need to, if we're looking to nature as a an inspiration, we need to learn what exactly is nature doing, and how exactly what's the pattern. What animals interact in this system? Because it's not just plants. It's a plant-animal interaction. And there is a reason why there's a whole group of animals called herbivores, and they eat grass or they eat vegetation. And then it could be browsers as well. But these are are really a, a critical part of this system. And we need to try to bring them in and use them and that's how, that is a great way to increase the soil, increase the soil carbon, increase the organic matter, increase the fertility, increase the fungal biomass in the soil. I mean, there's the benefits just keep it's like a virtuous cycle. Everything just keeps getting better and better and better. And the fact for us for the orchard of having a diversity of tree species, wow, it 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 really is getting to be easier and easier. And the amount of work really goes down. Uh, we had our absolute best year ever this year. We've never had such a crop. Like we, we left, I think, 40 or 50 trees loaded with fruit because we didn't even know what to do with. We had given away free fruit uh, for two weekends. And it's like, well, everybody who you know, we've contacted has come and everybody's got everything they need. So it's a it's a nice situation when the system starts to respond and really, really kick in and produce. So it is a virtuous cycle. And if you work with nature, rather than working against nature, and I mean anything that responds or relies on killing them, you're kind of going a little bit in the wrong direction there. I don't say we don't kill some things because we do trap a couple of insects that we aim to reduce their population. But for the majority of things that were a problem, they're no longer a problem.
0: Yeah, there's some great points there about, you know, mostly working to balance the ecosystem. But you mentioned that you do actually come in and interfere a little bit with those insect populations. Could you talk a little bit about when you decide that it's necessary to take some matters into your own hands and how you've chosen to do that in the case of insects and, and things like blights that can affect your trees?
2: Yeah, well, first, uh, certainly insects. Most places, I would say now, at least in the Western world, have some form of a scouting uh, service. It could be governmental, it could be private. And so the scouting is very useful. They will usually tell you there is a certain insect that has started to be caught in traps, and so we're nearing a threshold. And so that I use that service in our area in Quebec. And I just really want to know when is an insect starting to be seen because it's just handy. You can do your own, but they're actually doing that every day. And so it, once they start trapping a certain insect in my area, then I go ahead and, and usually we do trapping. So we trap for codling moth and we trap for apple maggot fly. So that service gives me a date when I need to have, and I always know the approximate date, but that can change plus or minus 10 days in a year. And so then I go ahead and we set out traps for those insects.
0: And what kind of traps do you use? What have you found to be effective?
2: Well, we, we've actually made our own traps, so we have a very simple... Uh, it's a recycled oil container that we use to trap coddling moth, and we just drill four holes at the top to allow the, the moths, adult moth to enter the trap. And inside, we just put a mix of molasses and water, uh, 50-50. So we put about uh, two inches or four or five centimeters inside, and that's enough. So once the moth comes in, they'll drown in the trap. And so they've been really effective. We've had as little as 3% damage, which is the acceptable amount for conventional orchards. And so by trapping that, that way it's really nice. We set out one trap per trio or one trap per three trees. And that's, uh, that works really well. We do have to come back in the season and check them. And if there isn't enough uh, liquid, then we'll usually just top it off with water because, it 's not the molasses that evaporates it 's just the water sure and you
0: also use a a biological spray. Um, I got from the the film that you use a whey concoction the um, the byproduct of cheese production to to coat the leaves. Can you tell me how that works in balance with the ecosystem
2: yeah whey is a a great product actually it 's uh, I love the idea that you can spray something on the trees that you can just stop and have a drink from. So if you can eat it or you can drink it, then to spray it is pretty safe. Uh, The only caveat I'd say is if someone is really intolerant to lactose, there will be some lactose in whey. But that's the only case uh, of any kind of problem we've seen with using whey. It doesn't actually kill anything on the leaves. And the way it works is it just outcompetes the fungal spores for the food that the fungus need to grow. And so if you spray whey, and usually you'll spray like you would spray for any fungicide, you spray a couple of day, a day or two before a rain. And the spray in whey, what it does is the bacteria in the whey will... Will go on the leaf as you spray it, and they will eat up the exudates or the sugars that are naturally found on the top and the bottom of the leaf. And they'll eat the sugars so that then, when the rain falls a day or two later and the spores start to come out, basically think of it as hatching. Well, they hatch and they They're free in the air. And when they land on a leaf, they immediately germinate. They send out a little equivalent of a little rootlet. But as soon as that rootlet goes out and seeks to grow, which is seeking to actually get established, they don't find any food. There's no sugar left because the bacteria from the way have eaten all the sugars. And so the spores just die. And so it's nice to know that it actually doesn't kill them. But it they do die, but not from the direct application of the whey. They just die because they have no food left on the leaf surface. So it's nice because we could spray whey, and we get a lot of mushroom growth now happening in the orchard. So as opposed to putting anything that's a fungicide or something that kills fungus, this doesn't kill it. It actually feeds fungus uh, that are in the soil because it is there's products in there that, the fungus can feed on uh, without without actually feeding the fungus on the leaf That's so it's brilliant kind of and a,
0: so simple
2: yeah the the guy i learned this from said we should actually throw out cheese and drink the whey <laughs> because it's where all the nutrition is in the milk after uh, you make cheese the cheese is just the agglutination or the The gathering of all the fats and the whey is all the protein and the nutrition and the vitamins and minerals.
0: I agree with that. I mean, so we used to produce cheese on the farm in Guatemala and we would always save the whey. And what we didn't consume ourselves, we would either use to like inoculate fermentations for preserving food or we would put it in our animal feed so that they got more protein and we didn't have to use nearly as much. There's a million and one uses for that stuff.
2: It's excellent.
0: And there's just one more to add to the tool belt. (laughs)
2: Yeah, and, and it's uh, it's an approved organic uh, product. So anybody who's looking to grow organically, it's not a problem. You can use whey. And there's so much of it. I mean, there is literally more than enough whey to replace all fungicide use in agriculture. Mm. Let me say that again. We could replace all the fungicides used in agriculture by using whey. And in fact, I was doing some study last winter. Uh, what's because I we did a study here in Quebec 20 almost 25 years ago on using whey, and they were they found that it's as effective as using conventional sprays. Well, that's a little disturbing to let's say some industries, and so that report mm. never never was made public. Uh, but I did see some more recent research, and in Australia, in organic grape growing. They've been using it quite extensively. And they were, the quantities they used, I, I was just, it was mind boggling. They're using 4% whey, which means the quantity of active, basically, of whey and bacteria is only 4% of the volume of of uh, liquid sprayed on the orchard. So it's a tiny amount. It's minimal, I mean, yeah. We use 100% just because hey, we can get it for free or just about, we just pay for the transport. And it is a foliar feed, like you said, the protein and the vitamins. It is good for the trees. And so the idea of using 4%, so I thought, wow. I mean, even if we use that 100%, there's enough to replace all fungicide use. And if you dilute it by 50% or 75% or even going to ninety. percent you know, ninety-six percent diluted. I thought, wow, we certainly have enough way to replace all fungicides and it would be better for the plants. It's kind of this thing that really so needs no to brainers. Get yeah, yeah, we really need to get this information out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well I'm so not let's... holding my breath though that it will happen because let's just say that it's a little disturbing for some very profitable uh you know enterprises. <laughs>
0: yeah well for the people in the know and (laughs) the fact that it's cheap or free like that is is incredible now look stefan there's one more thing that i really want to cover that i was blown away by uh, as i've watched your youtube videos and the other information you've put out and that's the way that you market your products and make a better return on selling basically wholesale produce like this and the various other products that you go to and i realized that that's one of the big sticking points for a lot of people who get into farming is it can be pretty dismal, the returns that you get when you're selling through um, through to middlemen who are just putting it out in the grocery stores. So could you talk a little bit about the marketing methods and the way that you get your hands directly into the consumers who want this higher quality product?
2: Yeah, the, uh, actually, I would recommend people, if you want the whole presentation, I gave a presentation in New Zealand uh, it's called membership marketing. If you just type in membership marketing on YouTube, uh, James, uh, Samuel recorded the video when we did it. And it's a really good summary of how it works. So it's basically, it's not my idea. It's not my technique. It was put out by a gentleman called Booker T. Watley in the ni- in the seventies or early eighties. He wrote a book, how to make hundred thousand dollars on 25 acres. And he basically outlined his formula, which is basically a membership marketing. So you're not selling uh, to stores. You're not picking. Most importantly, you're not picking. You get people coming as a you pick. But on top of being a you pick, they actually join as members for the year. So pay you a fee early in the year. And then they come and pick and pay whatever the going price that you set for them to pick. So I aim to be priced at about a, a conventional grocery store price. And so people who are used to conventional stores, they think, well, you know, it's not really an advantage shopping here because I have to pick it on top of it. But anybody who's used to buying organic, they go, wow, like you could get easily half price or less on on some of the things so there is a big difference and the biggest difference is we don't have to do the majority of the harvest which if you look at the economics of most crops 40 percent of the cost of production is harvest and packaging and people always underestimate packaging so it's a great way but there are caveats like you have to be within 30 minutes of 30,000 people. And we're really not, our farm is not ideally situated for the model. We're pretty well known, so we do get people, but we're still not, we're not overloaded with people uh, joining as members most years. Some years we refuse people because if we don't have enough crop, we use the, the, the ability to balance our supply demand with the number of members we accept. So it, it's ranged from twenty-five families to a hundred families, and that's how we use to kind of balance out uh, how much, how many people we allow to come pick is just using that. So that's it's worked pretty well. It, it's uh, it, it's a nice, it's a really nice model if you're in that range. And sure. uh, when I.
0: Well, and it seems like it solves one of the major problems that a lot of farms have, especially in their beginning, which is cash flowing early on. A lot of times you have to wait until a harvest comes in and then slowly try and reinvest that while kind of budgeting out until you get that another uh, cash injection from the next harvest. And especially with longer maturing perennial systems like this, that can be difficult. But this way, at least you get some cash up front in the membership uh, configuration that you can use to kind of improve the system as you go. No.
2: Yes, uh, but I do recommend that people who are looking to put in an orchard or any agroforestry, anytime you're talking trees, you're talking a longer time frame before harvesting. So I recommend that you start at the same time or in the same year or even in the first year, you start with annual productions of either vegetables and or animals. And so if you buy, for example, chicks in the spring and sell them later in the summer or the fall as, you know, raised birds, that's a great way to, to get a, a nice cash flow. And I recommend people look up Joel Salton's system for growing, for example, broilers or turkeys or ducks and so on. Uh, so, yes, combining the annual with the perennial because the perennial will take time and basically you will be creating your market for your perennial production sure. by your annual crops. So I say if you're, if you're good at selling and ideally if you're, let's say a couple of people and one person is great on production and one great on selling, I'd say you have a great combination, especially if you're in that. I like to say, just look around. Does your nearby town have a McDonald's? And if it does, then you know you're, within the, you're in the range because McDonald's will not put a, a restaurant if they don't have a big enough population uh, close by. <laughs> so if there is a McDonald's, then you're good to go. You say, yeah, there's a McDonald's in town. Well, great. Your farm will have enough people to, to really go well, to work well in that model. But the big thing is you're no longer selling a commodity. You're actually selling... You know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, you're not competing with whatever's in the store. People are going to be buying you, your brand, and, and your farm. And that's a huge difference going for, to retail compared to, you know, basically trying to sell on price, which is terrible. It's a terrible model to sell on price. You become a price maker rather than a price taker. And for mm. agriculture, that's all the difference.
0: Yeah, man, there's so many good things here to unpack. And I know we've only been able to go through kind of a brief overview of it. And so um, do you have resources and links and ways for people to get in contact who want to know more and dig in deeper to all of the the great educational resources that you've been putting out?
2: Yeah, I would say depending on what stage you're at, uh, certainly one of the easiest if you're just interested and you want to find out more. Get get the film the permaculture orchard beyond organic, so you can download a version depending which version you get uh, it's It's around ten bucks. start with that in two hours or a little more than two hours you'll really you won't be able to digest it all one go. I guarantee you there's so much in there, but you will have an idea of where you're going if you wanted to do that if you're That's if you're really looking to start out or if you've already started and you want some details. Uh, Otherwise, if you've already got trees put in or you want to see how you can have it diversified, we've actually kind of gone to Film Plus and updated all the newest information we know in uh, our virtual tour. And if you want to do get specific on pruning so we got a course put out called the the pruning course you can find that at uh, pruningcourse.com and you can take the virtual tour of miracle farms and the permaculture orchard at uh, miracle.farm so fantastic uh, i would just say the last one would be some of the most recent as it happens kind of information is just on uh, check out the youtube channel under my name stefan subkoviak or uh, instagram and facebook so those are kind of the places where i park whatever i'm learning or seeing or learning about and a good place to start
0: nice yeah i highly recommend those resources for anyone listening and i'll be sure to put the links to all of those things that you've mentioned in the show notes for this podcast so man stefan it's been such a pleasure finally getting to talk to you i'm a big fan of your work i really look forward to seeing what else you put out here in the future and thank you so much for making the time i hope we can catch up again in the future
2: i hope so too it'd be great thanks for the opportunity oliver and all the best on your project thanks so much all right you take care bye 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 Alright, that
0: wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than wading through more than 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design, philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.